Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back, glow in the dark, while radioactive science infuses into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll have Radiation 101, Fukushima and you. With me in the studio are Victoria Bond and Martin Facini. So Victoria, you want to get to the basics of what is radiation? Well, that's right, Ian. I think uh, last week we, we did a little intro's guide to what is a meltdown, but I'm still confused about many things, such as even what is radiation. I mean, I went back and I hit the books over the weekend, but I'm not sure I've got it all straight in my mind. And I was wondering if you could answer some questions. Sure. So, um, what is radiation? <laughs> <laughs> well, radiation is mostly light. Um, I mean, there, there's two forms of radiation. There's light and there's alpha particles, which are little bits of atoms, but mainly it's light. So you've got very energetic light, which it can be ionizing radiation, which is like X-rays and gamma rays, like you might get from an X-ray machine. And then you've got the ordinary light, like visible light, um, ultraviolet light, which is non-ionizing. Okay. And so when you say light, do you mean photons? Is that the same thing? Yes. Yes, photons or electromagnetic waves, however you look at the, the light. And so what makes certain types of light ionizing and other types non-ionizing? It's the energy levels. If for the very high frequency light that has lots of energy in it, it can rip electrons off atoms and do damage. And if those atoms are your atoms, it makes you unhappy. Okay, and we were talking earlier about electromagnetic fields. What are those exactly? Electromagnetic field is another way of looking at photons. It's the field theory of light. So you've got an electric wave and a magnetic wave at right angles to each other. And the electric wave produces more magnetism, magnetism produces more electric waves, and they sort of propagate through space. So that's one way of looking at it. That's sort of the pre-quantum way of looking at light. So light is both a particle and a wave? It's got wave properties and particle properties, but it's neither. Depends on how you look at it, which one you get. That's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the mystery of quantum physics. <laughs> and so um, there's different types of, of light waves from what I understand. You've got your radio waves and your microwaves and then visible light. That's right. That's all different frequencies or colors. Like all the colors are different frequencies of light. And so you've got infrared is below red and below infrared is radio. And so you've got sort of microwave and things going lower than that. And above, um, you've got violet at the top of the color spectrum, then ultraviolet, and, you know, you go on to X-rays and gamma rays. One interesting thing about the electromagnetic spectrum is people are surprised that there's so many frequencies below and above what we see from everyday light. It turns out that the very narrow part that we are able to see corresponds exactly to the most frequent um, emissions from the sun. So it's, we've evolved to perfectly see the kinds of light that are coming from the sun. So how come some lizards can see infrared? Uh, because there's an, an adaptive reason for that. 
whether it's from what they're hunting or from they have uh, parts of their skin that they can see that we can't. Well, that's exactly right. That's some of the latest research on human vision is that not only do we see what's in sunlight, but we really only see colours that are bunched around making the most of seeing skin colours and changes in skin colours. Well, that's really interesting. So back to radiation. <laughs> um, what makes a radioactive material able to put out light particles? How does that even happen? Well, it's unstable. So if you've got isotopes where the balance in the nucleus isn't even, then it's just not stable and it wants to fall apart. And as it falls apart and transmutes into lower atomic number, less neutron-rich elements, it gives off energy as it breaks the atomic bonds, uh, the, the nuclear force within the nucleus that's holding it together. So in order to lose things, it has to break that force and it supplies the energy and a lot of it goes off as light. Are there different ways that um, parts of those protons and neutrons can be kicked off? You mentioned an alpha, alpha particle earlier. So alpha particles is actually a form of helium without electrons. It's two protons and two neutrons. And those can be broken off because they're basically just neutrons and protons. And so if they break off, then you get all this extra release of energy, but they themselves... Um, can be harmful because they're, they're ions of hydrogen. And there's other types as well, aren't there? Other types of... There's alpha radiation, but there's also beta ra radiation? Beta radiation is electrons. Okay. And the, the nice thing about beta radiation is that it doesn't go very far through air. So if there's a beta source nearby, you're probably not going to get hurt by it. Okay. And then what about gamma radiation? That's the one we always read in the comic books. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that'll turn you into the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> um, that's the really hard stuff. So, like, x-rays are what you'll get at the hospital. But gamma is, you know, very energetic radiation. It's what you get from cosmic rays. It's travelled a long way and it's still really powerful. And that's going to cause a lot of damage. And is it possible for us to produce gamma ra radiation on Earth? Yes. Um, you get gamma rays from some from nuclear reactions, for example. Okay. And we actually use gamma rays to cut out brain tumors. That's called the gamma knife. And it's two colliding beams are aimed at a, a specific part of the brain. And where they collide is the tumor, and the tumor's burnt out. It's a very efficient and um, innovative procedure. Excellent. So we've got radioactive material giving off energy by basically falling apart. Was that the sort of idea behind the atomic bomb? It was just atom splitting to foster that energy? Well, exactly. So we've got all these, you know, the, we've got the four basic forces and inside the atom you've got the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and when you break it apart the energy that was holding the nucleus together, all those neutrons and protons, has to go somewhere and it can just go in radiation if it's slow decay or if it's really fast all that energy goes at once and you've got heat and light and sound and radiation and that's an explosion. Thank you Ian. And a welcome back to Martin Ficini, who's here to demystify health concerns about Fukushima. Thanks, Ian. It's been a month since a massive earthquake and tsunami struck Japan, killing an estimated 25,000 people. In addition to the humanitarian crisis, the world's attention has been focused on the still-unfolding nuclear disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. There are frequent news reports about radioactive isotopes detected in far-off places, heroic workers trying to bring the plant under control, 
and a critical shortage of so-called anti-radiation pills. However, it has been difficult to get a clear picture of what's happening on the ground. The company that operates the plant and the Japanese government have both been criticized for a lack of transparency. The levels of radioactivity are often reported in various different units, and the amount of exposure can be confusing. If you Google Fukushima, you can find some biased and misleading reporting from dubious sources. Let's cut through the spin and look at the health effects of this disaster, and let's use evidence to understand the long-term risks to the workers, the people near Fukushima, and the people in Australia. Let's start by taking a look at what we mean when we say radiation. Radiation refers to energy traveling through a medium. This includes radio waves and the light produced by our sun. What we are worried about is ionizing radiation. Ionization is the process in which a charged portion of a molecule, usually an electron, is given enough energy to break away from the atom. This process results in the formation of two charged particles, or ions, a molecule with a net positive charge and the free electron with a negative charge. This process releases a large amount of energy, energy that is absorbed by whatever is nearby. If your DNA happens to be nearby, the energy can cause breaks in the strands of DNA, injuring your cells. If enough DNA is damaged, cells can die right away, or they can survive their injuries, but develop mutations that will lead to cancer years down the road. Radiation can be deadly in the short, medium, or long term. Large exposure can result in acute radiation illness. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, headache, central nervous system dysfunction, and death. The minimum dose required to cause illness is variable, but 400 millisieverts of radiation can cause symptoms. 2,000 millisieverts, or 2 sieverts, can cause severe illness and in some cases death. Between 2 and 8 sieverts, most people will die, even with prompt medical treatment. The maximum annual dose allowed for nuclear workers in Japan was 100 millisieverts before the disaster. This was raised to 250 millisieverts for emergency workers. It is estimated that 19 workers have been exposed to more than 100 millisieverts of radiation. Also, the New York Times reported that two workers stepped in highly radioactive water and their lower legs were exposed to between two and six sieverts of radiation. Fortunately, this dose was mostly external and neither men showed signs of serious injury. It is unclear if any of the exposed workers are suffering from radiation illness. Currently, the Fukushima workers appear to have avoided the fate of the emergency workers in Chernobyl. Of the 237 emergency workers there, 134 developed acute radiation sickness, and of them, 28 died within four months. Outside of the troubled plant, it is much more difficult to assess the health risks posed to people. Here we get into the gray area of what constitutes a safe exposure. Radiation is all around us. The average person is exposed to 6.5 millisieverts a year. That includes radiation from rocks, from the sun and supernovas in deep space, from TVs, from the potassium that's inside our bodies, and from x-rays and other medical imaging. Even bananas are radioactive. Your annual radiation dose depends on the geology of where you live, your altitude, and the food you eat. Currently, there is a 20-kilometer mandatory evacuation zone and a 30-kilometer voluntary evacuation zone around the plant. On March 17th, it was possible to get a year's worth of radiation in six to seven hours by standing 30 kilometers from the plant. This prompted the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency to recommend that Australians stay at least 80 kilometers from the plant. Currently, the radiation from the factory is mostly contained in water being released to sea. However, many experts think that the clouds of radioactive smoke released early in the crisis pose the greatest danger. This radioactive smoke contained high levels of iodine-131, the isotope responsible for most of the long-term effects of the Chernobyl disaster. 
The journal Nature has received some preliminary data about the radioactive exposure of children in the areas with the highest levels of fallout. The risk of developing cancer after exposure to radiation is cumulative. This means that the longer you live, the higher your risk becomes. It is for this reason that children are the most susceptible. Japanese authorities have informed Nature that 946 children showed minimal thyroid doses of radioactive iodine. Measurements between the 28th and the 30th of March showed that these children were exposed to less than 100 microsieverts of radiation. This is many thousands of times lower than the doses received by children living near Chernobyl who eventually developed thyroid cancer. Put another way, the children around Fukushima were exposed to the same amount of radiation you get by flying from Sydney to Los Angeles. If it's true that children have avoided the radioactive iodine, then it's unlikely they will suffer the same fate as the children around Chernobyl. When people think of the long term risks of radiation, they think of cancer. Indeed, according to the UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, the biggest negative health effect of the Chernobyl disaster was thyroid cancer. Why thyroid cancer? One of the radioactive isotopes released in large quantities when nuclear fuel degrades is iodine 131. The only tissue in the body that uses iodine is the thyroid gland. Located at the front of the neck, the thyroid gland and its main product, thyroid hormone, are responsible for maintaining the body's metabolism. Once radioactive iodine is accumulated in the thyroid, it can cause damage over time, leading to cancer. The UN report found that, as of 2006, over 6,000 cases of thyroid cancer are directly attributable to the effects of radiation. By 2005, 15 of these cases had been fatal. Fortunately, the half life of iodine 131 is 8 days. Therefore, if you're not near the initial accident site and you don't eat or drink contaminated products from the area, you don't have much chance of being exposed to harmful doses of radioactive iodine. Unfortunately, nuclear accidents don't just release iodine and they don't only cause thyroid cancer. Cesium 137, with a half life of 30 years, and plutonium 239, with a half life of 24,000 years, are among the isotopes that pose a threat in the long run. In addition to thyroid cancer, Radioactivity has been linked to the development of leukemia, lymphoma, breast, and other solid tissue tumors. High doses have even been linked to cardiovascular disease and cataracts. The data that we have comes from the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Chernobyl, and from studies of medical imaging. Based largely on the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, most experts agree that a huge dose of 1,000 millisieverts, or one sievert, would increase your lifetime risk of cancer by about 4 or 5%. The National Academy of Sciences Committee to Assess Health Risks from Exposure to Low Levels of Ionizing Radiation examined all the data available on low level radiation exposures. The lowest doses conclusively linked to the development of cancer are around 100 millisieverts. If 100 people were exposed to 100 millisieverts, we might expect one extra person to develop cancer in their lifetime. This is in addition to the 42 people we would expect to develop cancer naturally. The data shows that the risk increases and decreases linearly with the amount of exposure. Below 100 millisieverts, statistical limitations make it difficult to assess the cancer risk. However, after examining all the data, they conclude that the linear relationship seen above 100 millisieverts would likely continue down to lesser doses. They also reject the idea that very small doses of radiation can be beneficial, as there is no evidence to support this hypothesis. This means that although the risk is very low for small exposures, it is not zero. Inside the evacuation zone, the Japanese government handed out potassium iodide pills in the hopes of preventing thyroid cancer. These pills were erroneously called a radiation treatment by many news outlets. Radioactive iodine was the main isotope released into the area 
and it posed a huge risk to those exposed. By ingesting potassium iodide, the thyroid would have all the iodine it needs, resulting in lower uptake of the radioactive kind. This caused a panic in other countries as people rushed to their stores to stock up. Those same news agencies reported that radioactive iodine had been detected in North America and Europe, causing further panic. The detectors used are exquisitely sensitive to the presence of radioactivity. The amounts detected are many thousands of times lower than the doses that are known to cause harm. Since the half-life of iodine-131 is eight days, after about a month, only one-sixteenth of the original amount remains. There is currently no need to take excess iodine. In fact, only the children living near Chernobyl showed increased rates of thyroid cancer. According to John Boyce, a professor at Vanderbilt University and an epidemiologist with the International Epidemiology Institute, the adult thyroid gland is not very sensitive to the cancer-producing effects of radioactive iodine. The amount of radioactive iodine that has been detected outside of Japan is orders of magnitude smaller than the background exposure you receive from eating a banana or sitting in front of the TV. The crisis at Fukushima is still evolving. Radioactive seawater is being released into the ocean. Vegetables and fish from the area have shown worrying levels of radioactivity. If evacuees have been protected from the iodine and children in heavy fallout areas are showing very low levels of exposure, it is likely that the worst case scenario has been avoided. However, the gradual release of small amounts of radiation over weeks to months has not been thoroughly studied. Of paramount importance now is the collection of good data. Without a solid understanding of the baseline rates of cancer and other diseases, it will be extremely difficult to determine the effect of chronic low-dose radiation. One thing is for sure. The psychological impact of radioactive disasters far outweighs the physical risk from radiation. There may still be a significant health toll in Japan and elsewhere from longer-lasting isotopes, but it will take constant monitoring and possibly decades before we know the true consequences of the disaster at Fukushima. Thank you, Martin. Well, we're throwing around a lot of numbers here, and I know I get pretty confused, so I thought we should put everything in context and just give you a couple good grounding figures. So the EPA says the yearly safe dose of radiation exposure is one millisievert. Now, a hundred times that dose is the lowest one-year dose clearly linked to increased cancer, although as, as Martin earlier said earlier, um, it's actually a linear relationship, so they're probably is no safe dose of radiation exposure, although that's, mm -hmm. we can discuss that later. And 10 times that, so 10 times 100 millisieverts is 1,000 millisieverts, which, is, which will give you minor radiation sickness. 1,000 millisieverts, minor radiation sickness, that's the same thing as one sievert. And twice that amount, so two sieverts, is when radiation exposure begins to be fatal. So back to the smaller doses. Um, you've got the EPA safe dose per year, one millisievert. That's about equal to 50 plain film chest x-rays. And a single chest CT scan, we're not even talking the full body CT scan, is about six times that yearly recommended dose, 5.8 millisieverts. So what does that all mean exactly? Well, it means that one of the largest sources of radiation that people will ever be exposed to is medical imaging. And I don't think a lot of people realize that the risks um, of being irradiated needed to be weighed against the benefits. So when we're looking at something like Fukushima, there's no benefit to traveling over there and exposing yourself to radiation. But what we have to, when we make decisions, we have to say, is this person going to benefit by taking the images and what is the risk to them in their lifetimes of being irradiated? 
And that's one of the reasons why doctors are very reluctant to image young children, and especially infants, um, while oftentimes um, basically any old person who comes in with a headache or a fall will get a, a head CT. So, um, you know, people are very concerned about radioactive iodine being detected at levels that are like multiple orders of magnitude uh, lower than these sorts of levels that we'll, we begin to care about. But they don't realize the everyday r radiation exposures they're exposed to. Right. I mean, one, a one-day dose at Fukushima, I mean, obviously, depending on the day and depending on the place, is about half of a single chest CT scan. But there's another side of it, is that although the iodine's going to go away because it's got a short half-life, there's the cesium mm -hmm. and the strontium, and they get absorbed into the bones, and they stay there for the rest of your life. You get irradiated at these really high levels for the rest of your life, and I think that's a bit more than getting some CAT scans. But is, does the bone turn over in, in a way that's similar to the thyroid in the children? Is that a comparable cancer risk? I think the isotopes that cause the most trouble are the ones that are structurally similar to um, elements that we use in our bodies. So I'm not sure exactly what the relationships are, but um, one of them approximates potassium, another one approximates calcium. So these can be incorporated into tissues that would normally take up potassium and calcium, where in fact they've actually got radioactive isotopes instead of what they wanted. Right. Um, and that, that tends not to wash away. Although one of the treatments I saw for um, it may have been cesium was to use Prussian blue, but I can't imagine it being very easy to flush out an element in the body. So I've had it put to me that there's a good type of radiation, that good amounts of radiation can be helpful to you in something called hormesis. Yeah, I, I sort of brushed that aside in my story. Um, there was just too many interesting things to talk about um, to go over in, in, in the amount of time I had. Um, I actually said that uh, the conclusion from um, the large consensus body uh, set out to study uh, low levels of radiation was that um, it, it basically that there's no um, benefit at low levels, whereas some people will argue that low levels of radiation will sort of cause these breaks in your DNA and cause these damage to your cells, that then the repair mechanisms of your cells will sort of jump into action um, and fix. And it's almost like, um, you know, giving your repair mechanisms a little exercise to be exposed to low levels of radiation. Um, but the, the uh, research body that was looking for a consensus statement um, looked at sort of whatever has been published in, um, you know, biological journals, um, you know, you can't study human radiation and many times, so they use animal models. And the brief statements that they, they discuss about hormesis are that really the body of evidence is, is, not, is against it. And certainly there is no compelling evidence for it. Um, but I think it's an interesting topic. Um, it's an interesting thought that's actually made its way into, into the media once or twice. Um, and it would be an interesting uh, feature in the future, I think. Next up, Dottie Evans and Tom Glazer give a thumbnail sketch of atomic history. Here's a thumbnail introduction to atomic energy. Here are some important highlights of atomic history from the X-ray and electron and the quantum theory down to Einstein and his formula for mass and energy. It hooray, we've got atomic energy. It could mean a better world for all. It hooray for 
for those who made it come to be. May we present the main events and heroes great and small. 1896, France. Henri Becquerel finds that uranium ore is radioactive. 1905, Switzerland. Albert Einstein shows that energy and matter are equivalent. E equals mc squared. 1913, Denmark. Niels Bohr explains how atoms emit light as electrons jump from higher orbits to lower ones. 1938, Germany. Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann split the uranium atom. 1942, United States of America. Enrico Fermi builds the first atomic pile and shows that atomic energy is practical. Hope and pray we use the power constructively to bring about a peaceful world for people great and small. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SR.com. That's diffusion at 2SR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be radioactive and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Martin Ficini and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.